Fika with Annika. Ever hear mention of Fika? For Swedes, Fika is nothing revolutionary. It's simply part of everyday life. But talk to any Swede who has moved abroad or anyone who has visited Sweden and they'll tell you all about how wonderful Fika is and how you should be doing more of it. Why? Because Fika isn't just a coffee break. It's a moment to slow down and appreciate the good things in life. The concept of Fika is simple. You take a break, often with a cup of coffee or tea, and find a baked good to pair it with. You can do it alone, you can do it with friends, you can do it at home, in a park, or at work. But the essential thing is that you do it, that you make time to take a break. That's what Fika is all about. In Sweden, Fika is incorporated into everyday life in many different ways. Fika isn't just a coffee break, it's a lifestyle, and one that we could all probably use a little more of in our lives. Okay, so we're sitting here, this is a, an, an episode with Fika with Annika, and my guest here is Barry Shankman. Hi, Annika. Hi. Uh, Barry's a, uh, from what I understand, a longtime resident of, of ANZA. Yes, ma'am. Via many other ports of call. International. Uh, Exactly. I understand that you lived in Memphis for a while, and you've been in New York and born and Dennis. raised in Memphis, uh, Venice, California, Moscow, Russia, Japan, Tokyo, uh, South America, pretty much a lot of places. Yes. Always had a base, though. Okay. Even when I first moved to Anza, I've been I've lived in Russia. My wife sort of is like my rock. So. Okay. So. What brought you to Anza? My wife's mother lived in Hammett, and I was making films in L.A. She got very sick, so I moved to Hammett so my wife could take care of her mother. I see. And um, so I was commuting to L.A. every day. Lovely. Mm, great drive. <laughs> and um, just drove up here one day, saw how gorgeous it was, really just wanted to be alone on property with no neighbors. And the more I saw and the more I came up here, the more I just wanted to be here. So, and that was about 20 years ago. Wow. Well, we're certainly blessed that, that you're, <laughs> you're enjoying, enjoying our scenery I, here. I love the land. I feel blessed that uh, I get to wake up every morning and my, I've got a bay window that faces east. So I watch the sunrise every morning and I have a bay window that faces west that's in my bedroom. So I can lay in my bed and watch the moon come up and the uh, sunset. So I, I really love, it's, it's, I love Anza. Yes, good. Okay. Um, so I was uh, reading a little bit on your bio and I see that uh, you were uh, back in the 60s you were a owner of Stax Records. Could you tell us about about Stax Records? You know, for people who may not even know what Stax Records okay. is. Okay, Stax Records is the was the number one R and B black oriented record company in the world, and um, I was honored to be the third owner of the record label and the studios and it sort of happened I was raised by the Memphis community mainly musicians and 
the uh, minority community of Memphis. My mom had cancer when I was a baby. And so my dad hired ladies to take care of me as a child because he had to work and then he had to go to the hospital. And so they would take me home. So I lived in all the like housing projects and stuff. And every, I was lucky enough like all these old musicians would take me in in the afternoon while she was working. And I'd sit on their couches while they taught me stuff. And when Stax finally was going bankrupt, um, I think the community decided that someone in the community should own it. And I was, I had a silent business partner that had, that brought me the cash the day that it was for sale. And so we waited till five o'clock at the court proceedings so that no one could bid against us. And we just outbid everybody and bought stacks. Oh, lovely. So how long did you own the, the record label? Five or six years. And this long was enough, long enough that, yeah, we made an, a lot of our records made an impact yeah. and we were, I was pretty young. I mean, I was just a teenager. So would you mind to name drop? Sam and Dave, uh, Otis Redding, uh, Eddie Floyd, Mac Rice, uh, Sam the Sham. Uh, and then at the same time, I was a musician, so I was playing with a lot of people like Bobby Whitlock and Eric Clapton and um, mm -hmm. it's it's sort of hard for me to name drop but like you know I grew up my dad and Elvis so I knew Elvis forever you know and um, so when people say oh well you knew yeah and it's never a big deal I mean my friend Patrick still owns Elvis's karate school he opened the karate school with Elvis called um, Tennessee Karate Institute okay. TKI so if you go up on Facebook, you'll see Patrick. And I think there's pictures of me and Elvis and Patrick and all of us together and Ed Barker and all these guys. But that was Red West. That's a lot of people. Thomas Bingham, um, he was Ann Peoples. I can't stand the rain. And uh, Teeny Hodges, he wrote Love and Happiness by Al Green. Yes. And uh, Take Me to the River by the Talking Heads. And so, you know, I got ties to a lot of music. Just FYI, um, I've got, I have a really long, I've done over 800 movies and television shows. I was going to get into your, your Okay, I'm just your, trying right, to give you information. It, it, exactly, I did see that. That was my nine to five job. And and you had several um, uh, careers within that too. It wasn't just. Uh, oh no, I I sort of just lucked in. You're I, a hands-on guy, is what you are. And I get bored real quick, and when I get bored, I move to the next thing. Yes. And uh, so if I'm standing there and you say, "Hey, we just got this machine in," and uh, I'll say, "Yeah, I can run it," and I'll take the manuals home, and the next day I'm your guy. Okay. All right. So, yeah, and I help. I own patents on a. I did a lot of uh, R&D in the movie industry, so I own like digital patents on um, telecine machines, which which when you watch a movie on television, it ran through one of my machines, okay? And I helped invent like digital effects for television, so like when you see, back in the day when we did it, when you see like a, a wipe, you know, a transition from one picture to another, yes. or you see it spin, or you see it do that, that's the that's an ADR that we uh, help produce. Okay, fantastic. I never graduated high school. 
uh, and I come from I a think family. It's all overrated, anyhow. Education. Oh, listen, I took the G. My parents. Um, I was a member of Mensa in 1961. I was 11 years old. Can I ask you what your score was? About 166. Okay, that's that's impressive. That and a bottle of Coke will serve my <laughs> thirst, okay? <laughs> uh, the one thing it did do for me is when I decided I maybe wanted to go to college, I could, I went down to Sarasota to New College in, in Florida, um, and they I mean, interviewed and they immediately took me in. I didn't go. Um, I found school to be just, wasn't for me. Okay. Okay. My mom. You were bored. My mom knew that, and um, though she passed early, even high school, she signed the papers to let me take the GED. I mean, you know, and I went to her and told her I was quitting school. So. And so where did that take you then? How did you end up in all these other places like Japan and Russia? Because um, the government sent me to Russia. They wanted to get rid of you. <laughs> in my file it says, uh, he looks like a pirate. Oh, I can in my, see in, in my, in my Now that's a long time ago. But uh, the one of the groups in San Jacinto, did you know that a Russian flew nonstop over the North Pole and landed in San Jacinto in the 1930s? I had no idea. I was brought in to meet the people that take care of that. They gave me a plaque to take to Russia with me when I went to give to the family of uh, the man that made the flight because Russia was still Russia. Fantastic. And the reason I went to Russia is I helped develop a machine called a telecine, which transfers film to video. And Russia was purchasing a telecine. They were very expensive at the time. So I was sent to train the people and help design and build the facility. And we built it in Moscow's like Central Park area in an old log cabin castle. And I, when I say log cabin castle, it was literally like a Russian huge, you know, structure with like the onion type things. Yes. Except the basic building was log cabin and it had wood floors and was probably built in the early 1700s. And I, uh, so I've been very lucky, yeah. So that's how I got to Moscow. How did I get to Japan? Teeny Hodges toured, and so I had to go. I was <laughs> okay. producing, at that time I okay. produced Teeny, and um, he was big in Japan. And this was right before Al Green started getting big. So Teeny and I, I produced a record on Teeny called Sad Day. Gonna be a sad day tomorrow. And uh, it's the only record that Teeny ever sang on. And so I went with them to Japan. Uh -huh. um, South America is more of my outlaw days. Okay. All right. Maybe we'll save that for another time. Mm -hmm. So with those influences, so um, tell me about the foods that you've experienced coming from Memphis. And mm -hmm. then, and then you know, uh, okay. and then experiencing, you know, uh, the, the international stuff, and then sitting here in Anza, the culinary capital of the <laughs> <Yeah>. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, I, I cook. 
Okay. Okay, so my deal with Betty is uh, I cook, you clean. Okay. I'm a pretty, I'm, I'm an okay cook. I'm an okay cook. I make the best barbecue, though. I, nobody makes barbecue as good as me. And I don't, I, everywhere I go, I sample barbecue. I've yet to find, so I make my own barbecue. But, all right, so back to my thing. I started out as a baby uh, in Memphis, and since my mom was so ill, um, the black community raised me. So my first culinary experiences were more Caribbean in the sense, so I had fried plantains and bananas, and then it moved into like cornbread and greens, and um, for a Jewish boy, which I am, uh, ham hocks, you know, and like my dad said, as long as you don't lick your fingers, it's okay, because, you know, you're not supposed to eat pork if you're Jewish, um, but that was the start of my culinary experiences. My dad was a Epicurean in the sense he was a gourmet. Uh, he went, he taught at Cornell University um, wine and I don't know the, the name of his courses because I was just a baby. Uh, but so my food experiences were actually pretty sophisticated, excuse me, for a child. And when my mom got really ill, my dad was the front person for the Embers restaurant, which is where Elvis used to go eat all the time. And it was like, you know, a high-end restaurant. So a lot of the time, you know, when the restaurant was closing down at two or three in the morning and I was, I'd have whatever. So that was the start of my epic. Yes. So unless I just don't like it, I'm willing to try it. Okay. Fantastic. And, you know, there are not a lot of, I guess the thing I hate most are tomatoes. Interesting. Okay. They just, we just have a, I don't mind ketchup. I don't mind tomato-based foods. But a raw tomato just doesn't work for me. Okay. But, you know, uh, escargot or octopus or cow brains, bring it on, I'm fine. Tongue. Very good. Anything goes with barbecue sauce, right? You betcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the start of it. So I have a very wide Epicurean taste. Um, I cook Italian, Jewish, Chinese, and just uh, whatever's in the icebox American. Very good. Okay. And I think like Betty and I last night had leg of lamb and um, broccoli. Nice. I was uh, married to a Greek. And so, uh, you know, I, I cook American, Swedish, Greek food very well too, so yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you might as well be happy and you might as well do what you like exactly. and enjoy what you do, you know, to just, that's terrible. <laughs> it, it really is. Are you or someone in your household on life support or other life-saving machinery like oxygen? If so, please contact the Anza Electric Cooperative Office at 951-763-4333 so that your account can be flagged. If your account is flagged, you will be contacted in advance of a planned outage. Since most power outages are unplanned, 
please be sure to have adequate backup on hand to last several hours. The Coyote. Listen to it. Welcome back to Fika with Anika. So it says here that you owned and operated a low-power television station in the L.A. area. In Hammett, uh, Betty and I founded K53DU, Buffalo Broadcasting. And, and that, what, what time period was this? 89. Okay. Um, we, I had just finished working in L.A., doing all the films and broadcasts. Betty's mom, as I had told you earlier, got sick. So we went down to Hammett. And I had an opportunity to purchase a broadcast license. It wasn't that I wanted to open a television station, but a broadcast license in the L.A. Basin was worth its weight in gold. Okay, And I needed something to keep us alive, and I needed something to do. So I opened a low-power station, got the license, and donated the station to, like, children's broadcasting. So in other words, I did, I would have, like, third, fourth, and fifth graders come in and do the news, and we would teach them how to run the station and the cameras and do all the switching and stuff. And then I just allowed, like, high school kids and whoever to do, just like the community radio station. Yes. It was a community television station. If you could come in and show that you had an interest, I was more than happy to give you the keys and come do it. During that period of time, Howard Maxson, who was like an elder in the Seventh-day Adventist church, he and I became friends for whatever reason, a lot of Adventists um, retire in the Hammond area, and there's a huge Adventist church. When we became friends, he contacted me and said that the church wanted to open a television station. Could I help him put it together? And so that led from one thing to another, and eventually Three Angels Broadcasting Network bought my television station so that they could go on air. Fantastic. Wow. That must have been quite an experience in working with the community and working with the youth. I, I re I'm impressed to hear you know, that you, you took the time to, uh, to, to teach youth they, and children. They taught, it's, I have the philosophy. Um, it's not the money that makes the world go round. It's, it's teaching people what other people taught you. And so I owe from all the years of people taking me in and letting me sit at like, I used to sit at Stacks in the back parking lot just waiting for somebody to let me into that door. I'm serious, okay? I used to skip school and take the 55 Poplar Perkins bus all the way to downtown Memphis, sit in the parking lot of on Macklemore of Stacks Records, waiting. You know, knee high for somebody to let me in. Isaac Hayes one day, who was the janitor at Stacks, he wasn't Isaac Hayes, he was the janitor. Said, Come on I in. I had no idea. <laughs> and he and William Bell and Robert Jackson, who were the Mad Lads, a group called the Mad Lads, they were like an a cappella doo wop group. 
Okay. So that's how long ago that was. Yeah. Okay. They took me under their wing and would let me in. And so I got to sit in stacks like long, I, mean, I wasn't even 13 years old yet. I got to sit there and I said one day I would own stacks. And at that when I said it, Booker T and the MGs had just released Green Onions. And that record is what started me into stacks. And yeah, on my, um, I won't say what birthday, but on my birthday at midnight, I sat in Studio A at the Grand Piano and I owned stacks records. All the start of a, a whole different a, career. Exactly, <laughs> right, yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, the nonprofit that you and your wife have. Okay. The Friends and Family of the Mentally Ill. Again, just another thing that just sort of, I met some people that owned an organization called NAMI, National Alliance of the Mentally Ill. And we got to be friends. And their son was a schizophrenic. And I met like Phyllis Diller and a, a bunch of people. There was a hotel in the LA area where people whose family had very, had people that were affected by mental illness in the family that could not be trusted to live in their homes because they were dangerous perhaps. Okay. okay. So they bought this hotel and they created a place for these children to be. And when I say children, some of them were in their 30s or 40s. But I, I saw it and I saw what their plight was. Betty and I, I had won a disability suit and I had a great deal of money sitting around. So I bought a bunch of broadcast equipment and I started making videos interviewing the parents and interviewing the child and talking to like NARSAD, the National Alliance. Um, it's a, they do like, they make postcards out of uh, artwork from these people that, and they sell them and that's how they support this, okay. So I got involved and I'm, long story short. So we made about 48 documentary films on that and I started giving them to local cable stations throughout the United States and to the parents. And if they could sell them, they could take the money and, and use it for whatever. I didn't mind, I was just interested and I thought it was interesting to see how it was done. So that was just, that's what it is. And I've given it all to NAMI now and they run it. Oh, okay. Thank you for listening in to Fika with Anika. Enjoy your cup of Fika Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and replayed Sundays at 1 p.m.